Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we'll be talking about Black History Month. Also, Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick will be joining us a little bit later in the program. February is Black History Month, or as it's becoming known more often, African American History Month. On today's program, we'll look into why black history is important to inclusion and African American contributions to national parks like Gettysburg and Valley Forge. Joining us on today's program is Alan Spears, Director of Cultural Resources and a historian with the National Parks Conservation Association. Mr. Spears, welcome to the program. Scott, good morning to you. Tanya Evans is Associate Dean for Inclusion and Equity at Widener University Commonwealth Law School. Dean Evans, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Tanya Evans, I want to start with you. You've been a guest on our program several times talking about one of your other specialties, intellectual property law, and always one of my favorite programs when we talked about some of the antiquities that we see in written and, I don't know, entertainment form. But Talking about Black History Month, one of the the questions as I said in the introduction, it's becoming known more often as African American History Month. Will the name in your mind, or should it be changed, and will it be changed? It's been an interesting evolution of the nomenclature around uh, just how uh, blacks in America are referred to. Uh, And I think, you know, historically we've seen the the name or the nomenclature change over time. Negro is still a word that is in one of uh, uh, the most important organizations, not only to um, African Americans, but also to Americans when we think of the NAACP, for example. And so the idea and concept of the name change seems to be more reflective of um, origin, connecting origin to your actual place of residence. Uh, when we think sometimes of Irish Americans, for example, uh, Japanese Americans, it, it finds some way to connect not only with your uh, culture and your history, but also where you currently reside. And so I think that move to uh, um, African American instead of black, you'll continue to see that uh, is likely to continue. And, you know, in my mind, it's it's not just a, a conversation to have about what someone prefers. But, I mean, right. just, your, just your title, Associate Dean for Inclusion and Equity. Um, you know, as we, you know, as you say, as we have evolved over the years, uh, how we refer to African-Americans would seem to go along with, hand in hand, with inclusion and equity. Do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. I think that's very well put. It's uh, more reflective that, you know, we're all Americans. We may have a different method of actually arriving here, but we're all here together. And so it does speak more to inclusion and an inclusiveness rather than divisiveness. Well, you just used the word divisiveness, and uh, we know that we we live in a, a, a country where there is a lot of divis- divisiveness right now, and it seems as though it's not just uh, that we have a new president and uh, there are uh, a lot of people who have pointing to him and saying that, uh, you know, maybe he is the, the cause for some of this divisiveness, but we've had, you know, some well-publicized cases of uh, police shootings of African Americans in the last few years. There have been uh, protest and demonstrations. So does that bring even more of a significance to African-American History Month? 
Uh, it's an interesting question because so often it's, uh, I think a lot of the problems stem from what I call otherizing. When something is happening to someone other than you or people like you, when in reality we are far more alike than different. We are all humans. Um, and it's too easy to divide up between us and them or that's happening to someone other than me. And so I think it is even more important for uh, months like this to highlight the uh, achievements and the contributions that particular citizens have offered to the greater um, American story. Um, you know, people ask me, why does it have to be black history or African-American history? It shouldn't have to be, but it is. Um, and until we can think of history and uh, all that is happening in the world to happen to human beings and not just one segment of the population, uh, then there's an even greater need to uh, humanize and uh, bring into the broader conversation what's happening to all Americans, and that includes the contributions uh, and the experience of African Americans. And I want to get uh, an answer to this for, you know, get both of you to join in this conversation. Um, Mr. Spears, you know, I think there are people, for example, one that's highly uh, publicized, very, uh, has been vocal about this, is the actor Morgan Freeman, who says that, uh, you know, he doesn't like the idea of having a Black History Month because he thinks that uh, what the contributions that African Americans have made are American history. And, you know, he points that out. What, what do you say to that when there are people who say that, and, and he's doing it, Morgan Freeman's doing it from a point of view that there doesn't need to be an, a month designated because the contributions of African Americans are part of American history. You know, I think it's an ever-evolving situation, as the dean suggested. And one of the places we have to start with the discussion of Black History Month was it originally started as Negro History Week. So we've come a long way. I think, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman actually provides the narration for the interpretive film at Gettysburg National Military Park, That's right. Birth of Freedom. And uh, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. So I have a great deal of respect for Morgan Freeman and for his interest in history. I do think, just given the history of this country, that it is important to recognize what's been left out. And I think the reason why we do have a Black History Month and why we've got a lot of other hyphenated preservation efforts that are going on right now is because so much of this history of this country, the important stories, the relevant stories, the critical stories, have simply been left out of textbooks. They've been left out of history courses. And we're still doing some work right now to elevate these stories of people of color, people from diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, women's history. So we've got a little bit more work to do before we could get to a point where we can just kind of meld everything in together because we have to make sure that when we do that, everything's fully cooked and everything's fully blended. We're not quite there yet, but I can respect what Morgan Freeman and other people who have that opinion are saying. And I'm not push, pushing back. I'm just uh, you know, bringing this up as part of the conversation. But give me some examples of some, and I know you could probably come up with a list of uh, 100, 200, maybe thousands, but <laughs> some examples of where African Americans have been left out of history. Well, you know, if we think about uh, the American Civil War, uh, it's. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and so my parents started taking me to Gettysburg National Military Park, I think, when I was about five, maybe six years old. And I really love that place. And Always has an impression, doesn't it? 
it always has an impression, and you know, more to the point, we would always go to the hobby shop on Steinweir Avenue after the visits, and I would get my little Airfix 172nd scale soldiers, and I'd bring them back to my bedroom and refight the Battle of Gettysburg. But it took me maybe 15 years visiting that park to find out that the little White House and barn that is almost literally at the apex of Pickett's Charge Field belonged to a free African-American named Abraham Bryan and that he and his family were in Gettysburg. They were part of a maybe 200-person strong community of free African-Americans and perhaps a couple people who had escaped slavery and were residing in Gettysburg, one of the first towns north of the Mason-Dixon line. And they had made a life for themselves in that community. They were well-respected by their white neighbors and peers, and they were loved. And when Abraham Bryan and his family found out that Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia was coming into Pennsylvania, they got out of Dodge as fast as they could. Now, in terms of being connected to the battle, did Abraham Bryan and the other African Americans have a tactical uh, influence on the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg? No. But I think it's always important to think um, that at the heart of the, of the battlefield at Gettysburg National Military Park, there's African American history there. And we don't have to take anybody off the mantelpiece of American history. We don't have to remove Longstreet or Lee or Jackson or any of the other figures. Uh, but we do need to include Abraham Bryan and Harriet Tubman and the Tuskegee Airmen so that our history is a little bit more inclusive, well-rounded, and just plain accurate. You know, just an observation. It seems as though, I mean, I, let me take a step back. You know, one of the things that you said about the, the textbooks and teaching history, of course, there is a criticism that we're not teaching uh, as much American history as we used to anyway. Uh, Part of it because of, uh, you know, the emphasis on test and, you know, what schools have to go through, teachers have to go through and that kind of thing. So, But that's, that's you know, for an, another, another program. But one thing that I've noticed as a student of history is that there appears to be in recent years more of an emphasis on the people. All right. Now, you cannot go to Gettysburg without hearing about the military part of it, the strategy. It was such a huge battle, it was such a turning point in the history of the battle, the history of the Civil War, the history of this country. But you are hearing more about the people, and that's where you do hear about uh, African-Americans in Gettysburg. Something you mentioned, uh, Alan, is that uh, you know Gettysburg had a, a good-sized African-American population because it was the first town north of the Mason-Dixon line, and and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. So Gettysburg, even before July 1st, 1863, had some historic um, significance. It did. And, you know, part of uh, the conversation that we're going to have at Widener on February 8th for the program that we're going to deliver is going to talk about the connection between African-American history and the National Park Service. And that's why a place like Gettysburg is so critically important because they're helping to protect, preserve, and interpret and disseminate these stories, as you just talked about now, the presence of the people. It's not always the folks on horseback with the swords that are leading folks, but it is the privates and the citizens and the folks on the home front, women. And Gettysburg and a lot of other national parks, but Gettysburg in particular, has been a leader in this effort to sort of make history more inclusive. And it's not just a politically correct thing to do. I don't actually think it's a politically correct thing to do. It's just a great thing to do history-wise. 
and it makes it so much more compelling. These stories are fascinating. And if you take a look at Gettysburg and the history of Adams County, it always has struck me as being very ironic that if you were an enslaved African-American making your way north on the Underground Railroad and you got to Gettysburg or someplace in Adams County, you might have been more welcomed by the white Protestant community there than if you came over as a German Catholic immigrant because of some of the nativist prejudice that was going on. This stuff is fascinating. And so I think the case that we want to make, that I want to make, and that the Park Service is sort of leading the way on here is giving us a more comprehensive understanding of who we are, where we've come from, and maybe that can help to give us some clues as to where we're going. Would you agree with my observation that we are starting to focus, and not just national parks, but overall, that we are starting to focus more on people? Yeah, I think you're correct. Yeah, it's, and I it, think that's a good thing. I, I do too, because I think it it makes it very relatable. I mean, uh, it's it's one thing to memorize dates and uh, you know who won which, which battle and that kind of thing, but when you realize that there were real people involved in this, I, I just think it makes it more re- relatable for any age. But maybe that's how uh, the younger generation uh, gets more interested in history that it becomes more relatable. Uh, Tanya Evans, you know, you have a um, a very impressive background, and uh, when someone looks at your biography, I mean, you went to Northwestern, you had a, a tennis scholarship, you uh, played professional tennis. As I said, you're an expert when it comes to uh, intellectual property. But take me back to your childhood. I mean, you obviously were a good student, but take me back to your childhood and uh, what you were taught about history and African-American history in particular. I had the benefit of going to Friends Central School. I grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, it's a, a private Quaker uh, school, um, pretty diverse and also always open. I, In retrospect, I feel like we had a lot of these conversations, and they went above and beyond the call of duty. Also, just learning the uh, role that Quakers had in joining forces with um, blacks to... Um, make their way through civil rights and all sorts of other things. Uh, Many of the stops along the Underground Railroad in some form or fashion had uh, Quaker support as well. And so I had the benefit um, while going to school to have that be a part of my um, experience in terms of history. And then I have two strong black parents as well. My father's a doctor. My mother's an attorney. Uh, And so I saw them grow up, and education was critically important. um, grandmother was an educator as well. She had an advanced degree. She owned property. So I was, you know, I saw history, living history, where I was able to recount from my own parents and grandparents their story, um, their uh, excellence in spite of struggle. And so it's, that's the kind of the stock that I was uh, born into. And so there was always um, um, an accountability as well that I would live up to that and that I would exemplify all the hard work today, and then I try and instill that going forward with my students as well. And so that's kind of my background and experience. When you say that uh, there was an accountability, expectations, I mean, was history part of that? I think we didn't sit down to have actual conversations about history at the table. It was our, just the way we discussed um, our experience was always contextualized by uh, not just our achievement today or what we, you know, what I was to do in the future, but contextualized from um, normal conversations. So I can't say that it was carved out as a, 
a specific time. We absolutely took Black History Month very seriously, and so there was heightened awareness, uh, heightened awareness during that time. But those conversations went on in my household um, throughout the year, throughout the year. I'm uh, very involved in politics as well, uh, my mother in particular, so I remember participating um, in voter registration drives in Philadelphia at a very early age. I'm quite sure I didn't know what I was doing, but I was there. <laughs> um, as my mother knocked on doors and I handed people pieces of paper um, if I hadn't already drawn on them. And so in that context, it's understanding, for example, why voting mattered and how difficult it was for my grandmother, uh, for example. So it was the, the type of conversations that we had were just infused throughout the year. We're going to talk more about this, and we're taking your phone calls and emails, too. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. February is Black History Month, and being February 1st, that's our discussion today, part of our discussion today. Our guest, Tanya Evans, Associate Dean for Inclusion and Equity at Widener University Commonwealth Law School, and Alan Spears, Director of Cultural Resources and a historian with the National Parks Conservation Association. Alan Spears will be speaking at uh, Widener University Commonwealth Law School in Harrisburg on February 8th. And if you'd be interested in that, go to their website and you get information about the Mr. Spears' uh, speech on that day. If you have a question or a comment about Black History Month, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. You know, when we're, we're talking about uh, things that have been missing over the years that uh, we learned or didn't learn in school. I can't help thinking about uh, a couple stories, even my own. Um, and and I think, Alan, this is something maybe you can relate to because Harper's Ferry is uh, a, a national park. Now, I'm originally from Coatesville in Chester County, um, you know, a large African-American population. But I, I some of the things I've learned in the years since I graduated high school or left Coatesville, for example, I wonder why I never heard about. For example, walked into a bookstore in Harper's Ferry one time, and uh, the owner of the bookstore said, oh, you're from Coatesville, because well, we got to talking. And he said, you're from Coatesville. The first African-American who was killed during John Brown's raid was from Coatesville. I said, what? I never heard that. And I, I've tried to look it up and can't find out. Who, I, I should have continued the conversation, but he got busy with some customers. But I've always wanted to find out about that. But my point being is something I'd never heard. The other thing, in uh, 1911, uh, there was uh, the, the last lynching of an African-American in the North occurred in Coatesville. Not something to be proud of, obviously, but something that we as students in the area schools were never taught. Now, there is uh, a historical marker at the spot where it occurred now, put there by the Commonwealth, but I, I mentioned something on Facebook about never hearing about this, and some of my African-American classmates said, we heard about it from the time we were born. So. Those are just a couple of examples of what you weren't taught in school, very significant events involving African-Americans. Yeah, and I think that list continues to grow. It, it, it can also grow for women's history. It can grow for – and you had also mentioned that I think just there's a deficit of knowledge related to American history generally. 
And uh, the YouTube is filled with uh, these reports or, or videos of students who, who can't tell you who were the allies and who were the Axis uh, in World War II. They can't name you the century in which the Civil War started. Uh, I think I even saw one where they someone responded that they thought the Civil War was a fight between North Dakota and South Dakota. Oh, well, really? Got the North and South oh. part right, but not much else. Um, I do think that there are. Right, a I lot have to more laugh at that, you know. <laughs> I have to laugh at that one. That's <laughs> that's pretty bad. But you know, the, the Harper's. I think again, we go to national parks, and one of the things that we're we're looking to expand people's definition and awareness about is. There's still this uh, sense that national parks are these great iconic western landscapes, places like Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon. I've been to all three, and they are truly awe-inspiring and awesome places. But two-thirds of the current system were established to commemorate some aspect of the nation's history and culture. And of those two-thirds, you've got about 26, maybe 28 that are what the National Park Foundation refers to as African-American experience sites. And so we at the National Parks Conservation Association are working to help the Park Service gain the full appreciation of the public, the full awareness of the public that they are, by virtue of the sites that they manage and the stories they interpret and preserve, one of the largest stewards of African-American history in the country. And more people need to know about that. More people need to be impressed and motivated by that to visit national parks, places like Harper's Ferry and Gettysburg. You know, the, the point can be made, and historians, there are historians who will make it, that uh, John Brown's raid was really the first shot fired uh, for the Civil War. And obviously uh, there were African-Americans involved in that. But tell me a few more stories of some stories that people may not know, may not be aware of when you talk about the African-American experience at national parks. What are a few that uh, people may not be aware of that they should be? Well, I think it's about establishing the proper context. So, for instance, uh, also in Pennsylvania, you've got uh, Valley Forge National Historical Park and the, the wintering of the Continental Army there. The force that George Washington was leading was one of the most multiracial forces that the burgeoning United States of America had ever seen or, or would ever witness until perhaps the First World War or the Second World War. And so there were there's a monument at uh, Valley Forge to the African-American or black Revolutionary War patriots who fought with the Continental Army. And there are a number of other stories where you have, uh, in Fort Davis in West Texas, for instance, you wouldn't know it by the name. In fact, the fort was named after Jefferson Davis, uh, the Secretary of War for the United States prior to the American Civil War and prior, prior to becoming the President of the Confederacy. But this small outpost in West Texas after the Civil War and during the Reconstruction period was home to all four regiments of the black regular troops, the 9th and 10th U.S. Cavalry and the 24th and 25th U.S. Infantry, and they're also commonly known as the Buffalo Soldiers. And they were out west patrolling with their white peers in the cavalry and in the infantry, and they were laying lines and building roads. And ultimately, the uh, 9th Cavalry went west they actually went to the Philippines first to fight in that war and then came back to a, a duty station at the Presidio in San Francisco. And then under the command of Captain Charles Young, a company of uh, the 9th U.S. Cavalry went into Sequoia and Kings Canyon near Yosemite National Park. And Charles Young became the first acting superintendent of African-American heritage. And his men spent a uh, summer working in that park. And some of the trails and some of the roads that we still use in Yosemite today were laid down or improved by African-American soldiers in the 9th U.S. Cavalry. So 
There are myriad stories and uh, sort of untold stories and hidden facts that connect African Americans to national parks. We're talking about having just come out of the centennial year for the National Park Service, about how we can get people to visit national parks for the first time. And I always regard it because of these incredible historical um, gems that we've got. It's not about visiting for the first time. It's about coming home. We've always been in these places. And I think that's the message to be conveyed to everyone because it's a, it's a positive message and it's a hopeful message, and it is one of inclusion. You know, the, the Valley Ford story and uh, the number of African Americans who fought uh, with the Continental Army may surprise some people because you jump ahead to the Civil War and it took until after the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, really when the Union was starting to get desperate for uh, uh, for soldiers that uh, the okayed uh, uh, African Americans to fight. So a lot of people probably think, well, if they didn't fight in the Civil War for two years, they probably didn't fight in the, in the Continental Army in the Revolution. But as you as you w- point out, they did, they did, and also fought in the War of eighteen twelve, and on both sides, mind you, and in the American Revolutionary War on both sides, because especially in the Southern uh, of what would become the United States in the southern portions, the British understood what it meant to be amongst the population of enslaved African-American people. And there were proclamations there that said, hey, come over to our side and put a red coat on. We'll get a musket in your hands and you'll get your freedom. And that of your family as well if you fight for uh, king and country on the side of, the, on the side of England and the American Revolutionary War. So the, the history is very complex. It, is, um, it links across all, a variety of silos, and I think sometimes we're very comfortable about placing things in silos. But it's that absence that you're talking about, Scott, that I think is really important, and that's one of the things that we have to rectify through conversations like this and through the historic interpretation that's coming from rangers in national parks and, and in museums and exhibitions all over the country. So it's, uh, it's critical work, I think. It's just the idea of leveling out this playing field and making sure that people understand that our history is a lot more racially complex than we've been led to believe in some instances. Dean Evans, I want to talk a little bit about Philadelphia. Uh, you said you talked about growing up in in, in Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia in the you know pre-Civil War was a hotbed for uh, the Underground Railroad, uh, kind of one of the most significant places to get uh, uh, those who had been enslaved, getting them to freedom. Maybe they settled in Philadelphia or went north, maybe even into Canada. Um, but it also was one of the, the, the capitals, if you will, of uh, abolition, that there were many famous abolitionists uh, in, in Philadelphia. And you mentioned, and this is something that I often think doesn't get as much attention to, with your education at a Quaker school, that how significant the Quakers were in getting many enslaved people to freedom. Is this something that you were taught in school? Uh, both in school and recently. My mother has been going back into our um, uh, family history. She's our resident family historian at this point, and so I'm actually learning a lot through uh, not only um, a lot of school trips that we took. I remember going to uh, Mother Bethel AME Church and, and learning about the role that Mother Bethel and some of the um, religious figures that came out of the AME tradition as well um, have all of this interconnectivity to the Underground Railroad. I did uh, live for some period of time in the Germantown section, and I know that there were some stops along the way there that have since been preserved. 
So we, I certainly remember through school, but also um, learning about, um, you know, American history really through um, unearthing some of the facts and the historical references for my own family. So I'm a work in, in progress and, and process with that as well. But uh, to your broader point of uh, American history, learning about ourselves often connects us to American history as well. And so that certainly has happened to me. We only have a, a couple minutes left, and we got a phone call from Jeff in Harrisburg who brings up a very good point. He says one of the reasons that both blacks and whites don't know much about, about black history is it's painful for both sides. You need to connect their condition to the institution of slavery because it's so important to their past. Uh, Dean Evans, what do you think about that? I think we, if we do not, you know, the first uh, uh, point of reference to move forward is to acknowledge the past. Um, and just because we don't speak about things doesn't mean they miraculously disappear. I think the current state of you know, our country and, and probably the world is reflected of not telling the story. The fear isn't in the story because what's happened has already happened. You can't undo that. Um, but providing context and space for everyone's stories and experience, experiences is what can actually bring us together. When we realize that our experiences can be more alike than not alike and that uh, uh, compassion is really born out of listening to people and connecting on a heart level. And so I think we have to tell these untold stories. And that is probably the perfect way to end this segment of the program. I want to thank uh, both of you very much. Tanya Evans, Associate Dean for Inclusion and Equity at Widener University Commonwealth Law School, and Alan Spears, Director of Cultural Resources and a historian with National Parks Conservation Association. Alan Spears will be speaking at Widener University Commonwealth Law School on February 8th. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thanks very much, Scott. Thanks, Scott. I just want to let everyone know that that is February 8th, 5.30 to 7.30 on the campus. There you go. For uh, information on our website. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The mystery continues over some human remains that were found in Cumberland County two months ago. At the time, we talked with Dauphin County Coroner Graham Hetrick about how he and other coroners do their jobs. Human skeletal remains were found in the woods of Cumberland County last weekend. The bones were estimated to be, have been there for about two years. Cumberland County officials will try to identify the remains. Now, this is a nation of more than 300 million people, and those bones could belong to anyone. So how are remains like this identified? who will assign them life to this scattering of bones. Graham Hetrick has served as Dauphin County's coroner for 25 years. He's participated in 3,000 autopsies and certified more than 13,000 deaths. He's an avid student of thanology, the study of death and how passings impact people and society. He lectures on grief counseling and hosts the coroner I Speak for the Dead on Investigation Discovery Channel. Graham Hetrick, welcome back to the program. Hi there. It's good to be here. It's quite a resume. Uh, it's a long one. It, it is getting longer, too. It's 20-some years long, 26 years long. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Before we get into talking about uh, the remains found in Cumberland County, and I'm not going to talk specifically about that, but how you go about identifying them, I want to talk a little bit about the TV show, because this is the first time you've been on Smart Talk since uh, the TV show 
uh, began airing. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I told you beforehand, I, I watched all the episodes. I love the show. <laughs> Thank of course, you. I was very familiar with almost all of the cases that, uh, that, she, that she profiled. What kind of experience was that for you? Um, it's, it was bigger than what I thought it is, uh, was uh, going to be. It's uh, when you do a nationwide show, plus it's now in England and Europe and South America and places as far as Serbia, um, it, it, <laughs> it does give you a lot more exposure. Uh, I was really, number one, I was, I was really pleased with the relationship I had with Discovery. Um, they allowed us to show the teamwork and the science and I think the stories were told respectively and you know, respectfully, and uh, that—that's the big thing. I also write a blog for each episode, and uh, you can find that on uh, ID Discovery, and it'll send you over to my private blog, which is uh, GrahamHectric.com, and those are more in-depth com- commentaries. And the other thing I did is I created sort of like the. Uh, the layman's glossary to forensic terms, and that's been fun doing that, too. What terms don't we know? Well, in this case, with the uh, bones, we're talking about physical anthropology and, to an extent, archaeology. One thing that happened in that particular case is, uh, for well over a year now, uh, Charlie Hall from Cumberland County, who is the coroner there, and myself worked together. Um, we back up each other. And uh, you always want to work your strengths and staff your weaknesses. And so back and forth, for instance, he does a lot of alternative light stuff. I've done a lot more bone stuff. And uh, we needed manpower because it was uh, on the top of a mountain, cold, <laughs> and uh, the brush was amazing. A, a hunter found these mm-hmm. skulls. So now you know it's a human when you see the skull, or at least most of the skull. And so I went out with Charlie and uh, um, started looking at bones crawling around in the woods. And they were drugged in a very uh, large area, mainly because I believe of uh, bear interaction up there. Mm. That's something that uh, when bones or remains are found uh you know that, that have been there for a while mm-hmm. that, that that wildlife and especially in a rural area like that that wildlife is a is a real problem and i know that you know one of the things that you do often I don't, okay maybe not often i'll let you say it, whether it's often but that like insects for example have yes. been used to determine uh, the time of death or how long remains have been there, correct? Yeah. As a matter of fact, down at Harrisburg University, Dr. Fury and I maintain a uh, uh, a colony of forensic beetles to clean off the bones. So it works What, what do you do? How do you do that? Uh, you just put the bones in there and they, they clean them off. So it's uh, the, one of the benefits of that is they never eat the bone, the beetle. So if there's... Uh, tool marks from a weapon or something like that, it's, uh, you can safely say in court, well, we didn't make that mark. You mean, so these are flesh-eating or yeah. tissue-eating beetles? Yeah, they're, they're beetles that are, it would be out in the wild in the natural process. You go from first flies, then fly eggs, then maggots, then pulp by, and then after all that work is done, the beetles start to come in. 
and they finish up the process of taking a, uh, a human being as well as environment, a human de- being this down to skeletal remains. Now, in this case, they were skeletal remains, but the uh, um, there's a lot of information that be, can be gained from a skeleton. The other thing is the state police called in uh, Mercyhurst College, mm-hmm. and that's uh, Dr. Dirtmack up there, who is a physical anthropologist. Near Erie. Yeah. Yep. And he's also one of the, uh, uh, he also has a subspecialty in archaeology, so he can map things out very well. And uh, he was up there, uh, I think, at Sunday and Monday we worked at. But uh, there's a lot of information to be had, and uh, now it's just uh, the detective work of who is missing and applying that data from the bones to who is missing and then trying to look for dental records, DNA, all those sort of things. All right, I want to get back to these beetles for a second. Uh, if I encounter one of these beetles in the wild, they're not going to eat my finger off or anything, are they? No, they only like necrotic tissues. Oh, good, good, good. That's good to hear. You're not necrotic That's yet. Not yet, no. I'm getting closer to it every day, you know? But, uh, all right, so let's walk through the process. The bones are found by the hunter. Police right. are called. You're, Charlie Hall's called, you're called, uh, all these people are investigating. Walk me through the process. Well, of course, you work as a team, and it, we had a large search area, a very rough area. And uh, so we started working through that, and then eventually uh, Dr. Dirtmack also brought a team of students and himself uh, from, uh, from Pittsburgh, or no, Erie, and uh, we just continued to collect. I was there for uh, a good part of Sunday, and then I left. And then as the other team came in, because it's a manpower issue, um, uh, Dr. Dirtmack found additional, uh, I think, uh, femurs, more of the pelvic girdle, the jaw, which is very important, the lower jaw, the mandible. Why is that? Well, uh, for instance, I do uh, facial re-sculpting. You know, mm-hmm. something like that. If you don't have the jaw, you can't do a realistic sculpting. Mm-hmm. So it, it's important that way. It's, a, it's a, all, all, all bones. There's 206 bones in a body. We'd love to have them all. We're not even close to it here. But we do have very important things, such as the teeth. In the teeth, we can compare with dental records. So uh, in that way, plus the position and the mapping out of where the bones are, tell us... Uh, for instance, what what animals were in play here, and there are a lot of bear in this area that we were in. And I I know that there are certain things about the case, this particular case, that uh, you can't talk about. So I won't ask you whether you know if it's a homicide yet or not, because that right, information no. hasn't been released. But one thing that I've heard you say before is that when you are investigating a case like this, that homicide is like one of the first things or maybe the first thing that has to be ruled out. Why? The, uh, our rules, that I, I have interns every every year, and either myself or Dr. Ross will say, what is, what's the first rule in medical legal death investigation? We say, rule out homicide, rule out homicide, rule out homicide. So that's the first threshold. So... Um, what you do is you test hypotheses, and that's what good science is. You take a hypothesis, and then you try to tear it down. If it falls, then you go to the next hypothesis. So homicide, suicide, accidental, 
natural. Mm. Uh, now, many often, many times, often, I'm, I'm sure you can tell right from the scene and knowing what's going on. Uh, you know, if there are witnesses, and you know, depending on what the, right. the death scene uh, was, whether there's possibility of a homicide or uh, a, a suicide, for example, or natural causes. But in a case like this. What do you when, once you get these bones, collect the bones, collect all the evidence that uh, is around there? Then what? Well, then everybody as a team looks at it, and there's various parts of the team. As as Dr. Dirtmack is working uh, on his uh, physical anthropology in the bones, and as we look at another thing called taphonomy, the way bones, mm-hmm. the way bodies decay. And what's left? What's the timeline? So then you get timelines. We even will be looking at uh, what the vegetation was like there two and a half or three years ago. So you get all this data together, and then the uh, the raison d'etre comes up, the reason for what we saw. First, we document. Everything was photographed, documented, and 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 then... The next thing that comes up is why. Why is the skull there? Why were the bones over here and these bones over there? That's called that's called the scene reconstruction. The first one is processing it. Then you reconstruct. And then from there, you start looking for leads through some of the major databases that we have, such as CODIS, which is a, a DNA database. All right, let's let's talk about. Uh, you, you said that um, you know the study of death, but I want to go through. There's a place in, I believe it's Tennessee. I've been down there. I know you have, and that's what I want multiple to, times. To describe it. What is it? It's hard to believe. It was started by a Dr. Bass, who's in his 80s now, and I have met him uh, twice. A remarkable man, but at <laughs> the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. He wanted to understand taphonomy or the study of how bodies decay in different ways, in, in rooms, out of rooms, hanging, buried, in cars. And uh, so he started studying with uh, bodies that were unclaimed by ME's offices um, how people decompose and how we can learn from that. And he started what they called the body farm. He never called it that. But yeah, I, I can't imagine he would actually, put that on his. It logo, was somebody you know? in press <laughs> in, in the press that did it. It sounds article. like a, a media yeah. thing, yeah. And and uh, it, ever since it has been called the body farm, uh, it is interesting to note that the uh, the university has the largest collection of modern human bones in the world, and uh, it's simply because of all the years of this body farm. Now there's multiple body farms. I know there's one out in Texas and uh, so, several other locations. But it is good to be able to study. I've taken his courses down there and they're phenomenal. What do you learn? Well, first first you learn about the uh, the anatomy and the identity of bones because you have to figure out whether they're human or not human. And um, what what bones can tell you. Then secondly, uh, you have to learn about the recovery. How do you recover this stuff and have it, number one, in a chain of evidence, but have it effectively not damage the evidence? And then uh, 
the process of actually cleaning bones and identifying each one of them, measurements that can give you stature, it ranges, but stature of an individual, race of an individual, um, uh, pathologies of the bone that would be very identifiable if you could find old x-rays, that type of thing. Can you, uh, and I imagine it, uh, it depends on the bone or bones that you find, but how easy is it to determine, uh, say, sex, male or female? Of a... That's pretty easy. Why is that? Well, pelvic girdle, number one. Okay, I'm, I'm, but again, yeah. I guess what I'm picturing is yeah. you don't have that. Well, we yeah, we only have a portion of the one that's there, but we did have the the skull, uh, the skull in this case, and it is a male, so I mm -hmm. can say that. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the more the easier things. What about race? Um, that, in my opinion, is uh, much easier now than when I was first trained by Elizabeth Gatliff and and some others in forensic sculpting, and mainly because um, today, show me a pure race. In other words, uh, uh, myself and my wife is Mexican-American, so any kids would be a blend of both, you know. And as the world has just opened up, I think there's much more blend. So it's it's a bit more difficult, I think, to look at uh, 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 Asian or Negroid features and, and say, uh, this is exactly what it is. But uh, there are there are markers. Mm -hmm. Um you you called yourself a bone guy earlier in the program, yeah. <laughs> and again, very often uh, when someone finds uh, some bones in in the woods, for example, a lot of times you look at it and say, "Oh, that's an animal," but the skull, as you said in this case, uh, yeah. told you right away that it was a human. Uh, how easy or how difficult? How much of a challenge is it? Again, depending on the bones you find, to yeah. tell whether it's animal it or human. It depends whether it's a fragment. Uh, and some bones can be very confusing. Almost every year I get a, a call from state police or somebody saying, I think, I think we have a killer that just cut off the hand of a human being. And uh, I said, we'll take a picture of it now with digital phones, right? Right, right. They take a picture of it, send, me down, send it down to me, and... Uh, I'll say, well, bring it down. It's it's good enough to bring down, but I'll look at it. And invariably, in almost every one of these cases, not all, but in almost every one of them, it's a bear paw that's been stripped of its uh, fur and nails. And it is so close that even in the the almost the Bible of medical legal death investigation, which is uh, Fisher and Spitz, uh, and that in that book, they have a full-page picture of a bear paw and then a ra radiograph of a bear paw. And you can see how similar they are. It looks like a hand. See, I th most people would think of, okay, the, the nails. I said, well, why but, are they, the nails? Well, they're, they're the gone because whoever killed the bear stripped all the oh. fur off. And they, they cut off the hand so they could uh, work to get that, that bear rug type thing. Right, right, yeah. And And so when they strip it off, the nails come off. But the, the I learned claws. something here today yeah. that uh, bear claws or paws, not the claws, yeah. look uh, very much like humans. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about this before about how the science, the, the, the CSI type programs on TV, that a lot more people are uh, interested in your profession. Um, 
is that a good thing? I mean, are, have we made advances, and, uh, the, and is it a good thing that more people are interested? I think they're interested, in, but I had this uh, conversation with Dirtmac because we both teach at universities, and uh, he's the real bone guy. Yeah, you have to understand what a coroner is. <laughs> I'm sort of like a conductor of things, so I know a little about a lot, mm-hmm. but not as a conductor, I can't play the first violin. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I know a lot about it, and I know a good first violinist, <laughs> and that's the same thing here. Uh, Dirt Mac, this is his specialty. This is what he does. And uh, so he's very good at it, but I know enough to say, that's a bear paw. <laughs> <laughs> Dirt Mac could probably tell me how old the bear is. <laughs> you proud of yourself after you say that's a bear paw? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we only have a couple minutes left, and Graham, it's always nice talking to you. But I'm sure that uh, for those who watch the, the show on Discovery ID, uh, they want to know if there is a second season coming. And I, you may not be able to talk about it, but... Uh, the only thing I can tell you is that the first show was a breakout, and breakout shows do well on TV. So. You, uh, how big was your audience? Um, at, at times, it would, uh, in, in most cases, actually, it was about a million to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned to me, and this is not a surprise, that uh, after so many people have seen the TV show, that you're getting emails, letters from people, Asking them to yeah. investigate a death. Tell yeah, me that. about that. Well, it's very difficult because uh, many times those deaths uh, or the inquiries are because they just can't accept the right. existing death itself. So part of this, you mentioned about thanatology, the other study I have, which is the psychological understanding of death. And uh, a lot of these people are trying to work through their own grief. So I try to get back to them, but... Uh, this has become bigger than what I thought as far as answering them. So I have almost like a format letter that explains that I can't work through different municipalities. I have I'm on I'm on a cold case team as it is now for my own area, and uh, and plus I would have to bring people together of different skills because it's not me; it's the team. Are there like freelance uh, investigators out there. I mean, uh, granted, what you're describing all uh, over the place, all yeah. over the place. Okay. Yeah. So, and and uh, m- many times uh, they'll consult with uh, attorneys. I've done consulting with attorneys and investigators in, on what a threshold analysis is. But I'm just looking over the whole thing and saying maybe we should look here and there. That's mm-hmm. all. Discovery ID has just announced that the show. The Coroner, I Speak for the Dead with Graham Hetrick, will have a second season, so uh, we will be looking forward to that. Graham Hetrick, Dauphin County's Coroner. On tomorrow's program, looking at whether renewable energies could be what most of us are using by the year 2050. There are a lot of people out there, some companies, some organizations that have made that a goal. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, whether renewables will be dominant by the year 2050. 